is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Farmers markets are back, and I know you want to get those juicy pears or that carton of strawberries, but maybe you want to do more with them than just throwing them in a smoothie or eating them by the handful. One Michigan chef put together some sweet and savory ideas for how to use those fruits, especially those native to the Midwest. Abra Barons just released her new cookbook, Pulp, a practical guide to cooking with fruit. And she joins us now in the studio. Welcome, Abra. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited so to be here. So good to see you all the way from Michigan. <laughs> well, and that's the nice part about our part of Michigan is that we still get to listen to Be Easy yes. on the other side of the lake. So. That's fantastic. <laughs> so good to see you here. Thank you for, for making it in. This now is your third cookbook. Mm-hmm. Congratulations. Thank you. Your your first two, Ruffage and Grist, they, they didn't have much fruit in them. So why focus on fruit this time around? I grew up in Michigan, and Michigan is the second most agriculturally diverse state in the nation, mostly because of the sheer volume of fruit that we grow, Mm -hmm. especially in what's called the fruit belt, which is right along the western side of Michigan. We get those benefits from uh, the lake temperating the temperature in the winter and in the summer, giving us nice breezes, and then the topography is perfect for fruit. Okay, so yes, the fruit belt. You did write about that in in the book. You you said that you you, uh, tend to cook a lot with fruit in your day-to-day because of that. Yeah, the saying goes, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. Well, sometimes so too is abundance. <laughs> you have a lot <laughs> sure. of it alone. It's like, what, well, what else am I going to do with all this fruit, exactly. right? Um, you mentioned as well that it's hard to talk about cooking and food without also discussing the people who mm-hmm. make that food possible. Uh, the farmers and uh, everyone who works in the food production Uh, industry. So just help us understand the work behind that production. Well, fruit is is interesting too, because all fruit in the cookbook, except for ground cherries, are perennial fruit or perennial crops. So if you plant a cherry tree or if you plant grapevines, you're looking at a minimum of three years of overhead before you can really start to harvest that. And something for grapes, you know, you're looking at 10 years before you're really getting to that sort of full mm-hmm. production. And I think it's important for people to know that when I was doing the, the research to the book, a lot of people said, I never buy fruit because I don't know what to do with it besides eat it, it goes bad so fast and it's so expensive. And I think it's important for people to understand the systems that go into food that make it cost what it does. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a hundred years ago, 30% of America's population were farmers and today it's about 3%. And so there's lots of, you know, things that come out of that. But one of them is people just don't always understand what it takes to grow food and to get it to market. Absolutely. And that's very important. It is. I mean, because it also, especially when you're dealing with local stuff, like I think about, you know, Mick Klug Farm is Abby Schilling is the owner and she lives just a bit up the road from us and has a huge presence here in Chicago. And what it means if it's a really cold, rainy June and her strawberries, you know, are not as flavorful as people might think Mm -hmm. that can then impact if they're willing to buy her raspberries or her blueberries, you know, or things like that. And so I think it's important for people to understand those hurdles. And then the cookbook comes in to give them options for when the fruit isn't perfectly perfect, you know? Well, yesterday on the show, we had a discussion about Chicago declaring this state of emergency over Mm -hmm. the migrant crisis. You write in your book, uh, you know, changes to immigration policy, how they've contributed to to farm labor shortages. Mm -hmm. So expand on that for us a little bit. 
I, I think, you know, with that decline in America's farmer population, there are just fewer hands for it. And a lot of crops can be mechanically harvested. My family, I grew up on a pickle farm in western Michigan, and my family, my dad specifically, saw the transition from migrant farm laborers handpicking cucumbers to sell to Heinz to make pickles to being able to harvest it entirely with combines. So that mm. shrinks the need for that. Fruit is different because, especially if that fruit is going on to the fresh market, it's an incredibly skilled laborer who can, you know, bend over and pick strawberries for 10 hours a day and also be able to tell, like, all strawberries don't ripen at the same time. So it's not like you can just pick evenly across all the plants. You have to assess that perfect level of ripeness so that when it goes to market, it's not either still underripe or so far gone that then people are upset because their fruit doesn't last. Yeah, help us also understand the economic impact of buying in-season local fruit versus out-of-season fruit or or fruits grown Mm -hmm. far away from home. I mean, I should say all fruit that you're buying is grown by someone. And so it's I don't want to put anyone off from buying scratch ingredients because I think I would rather have people buy out-of-season non-local strawberries than like Jolly Ranchers exclusively, (laughs) even (laughs) though you can count on a Jolly Rancher. Um, But really the, the goal of local food economies is that they generate a ton of economic activity. I forget the exact statistic, but what's in my mind is for every dollar spent in your regional food economy, it generates $1.87 in economic activity. And so even, and I think you're more likely to get very delicious food if you buy it. It doesn't have to travel as far. They're not picking it under ripe and arriving it. But even if the strawberries aren't perfect, you're still generating that economic activity around it. Plus, buying direct from the consumer at a market or something like that gets more money into the hands of the mm-hmm. grower themselves. Yeah, and also I definitely notice seasonal fruit is cheaper at, at grocery stores. Mm-hmm. Uh, but does cheaper always mean better? I think it depends. I mean, I think generally it's cheaper because there's more of it. So it's a supply and demand thing or because you have fewer inputs to bring it to market. And I think everyone has to make their own decisions about where they allocate their resources. And if it's in being able to buy a lot of strawberries and then put them in the freezer so you have them, that's great. If it's that you have to apply those resources to, say, your you know bean and rice <laughs> portion of your budget – That's great, too. And I think it's really what's hard is that all of us who work in food, you know, we're trying to give information that can help people understand what to do with food when you don't think about it for eight to 10 to 12 hours a day. Well, you know, this might be like asking you to pick your favorite child, but what is is your favorite? Okay, well, there you go. Well, what's your favorite fruit? I mean, it really changes with the season, which is such a cop-out answer. But right now we are all just like waiting for rhubarb to come up. It's so tart and acidic. And I love it with things like pork or cheeses or really fatty fish because Mm. that acidity really cuts through that richness. So one of the recipes in the book is a poached rhubarb with pork chops and a rye spetzel. Oh my goodness. And it's just like that perfect springtime when it's still kind of chilly at night. So you are willing to cook spetzel or, you know, cook a pork chop, Mm -hmm. but then you get this like bracing sweetness and acidity from the rhubarb that just balances with it. You have such wonderful recipes in this book (laughs) and and the photos, I mean, they're beautifully done. Uh, The first part of your book, it's called the the baker's toolkit. Mm -hmm. So you got breads, crackers, crusts, curds, cakes. Why'd you start there? 
Well, the previous two books, both Rutherford and Grist, don't really have any baking in them, but they have a lot of different variations. And so what I wanted to do for fruit is to say, A, it's fun to bake with it. And so let's acknowledge that and have lots of baking recipes. Right. I'm not a huge baker. Like I don't find joy in a weekend long baking project. <laughs> you so don't? I, as it turns <laughs> out, I have friends who do. Uh, and so I have collected a variety of recipes from, I've been lucky enough to work with people like Sandra Hall from Floral Bakery or Paula Haney from Hoosier Mama Pie Company when my in my time in Chicago. So collecting those recipes that really are sort of perfect canvases for seasonal fruit. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to put all of those at the beginning to give people kind of the, the tool chest that I use. And then each fruit it has a preparation technique and then a savory recipe and a sweet recipe. And those sweet recipes are all kind of derived from that toolkit. Love that. Uh, there's a tweet that you include in the book that I want to read. Uh, it says, uh, here's the problem with fruit. It's inconsistent. Some apples are delicious. Some taste bad. Some blueberries are great. Sometimes they're disgusting. You know what's the same every time? Doritos. Seriously. I <laughs> Which mean, is so true. It is. And it's one of the reasons why I think it's hard sometimes to convince people who are time strapped or cash strapped that relying on scratch ingredients is important. I would say that I have always had blueberries that are better than Doritos, although I do love a Cool Ranch Dorito, (laughs) especially on a road trip. Um, But I think it is. It's that I think where you can grow to shine in the kitchen is how you take something that is less than perfect and turn it into something great. Yeah. I'm crazy about cherries. So that's me. I skipped ahead in the book and I was like, (laughs) what did she say about cherries? Um, I went straight to that section. I I saw some great options. You have cherry baked brie with CD crackers. Mm -hmm. Talk about that. So this is, I, I grew up with baked brie always being in like a puff pastry sort of crust and then the fruit would be on the inside. So it'd be like cheese, top it with some sort of jam and then wrap it in puff pastry. And then I realized at some point you don't have to go through all of those steps you can just take the top off of the brie load it up with cherries on top and bake it and by the time that the cheese is sort of slightly soft the cherries have also softened and kind Mm. of blended together and then those seedy crackers are from my friend pat mullins who worked at blackbird for a long time so i'm pretty sure it's a blackbird recipe from somewhere down the line with a lot of extra seeds rolled into it Mm. so you get that kind of crunchy nutty texture along with the richness of the cheese and the fruit i'm gonna try that like oh, I love this weekend. <laughs> it's, it's so a good. great party one too, especially as you oh. get into like summer entertaining, good you know, know, like snacky dinners. It's a perfect one for a snacky good dinner. Good to know. Something else I love, plums. Mm. But I've never thought about cooking with them, though. Mm. You've got plums in this book. One of my favorite savory recipes for the plum chapter, um, you know, the French traditionally don't cook with that much fruit in a savory setting, but there is a dish called pork avec prune that is uh, pork, you know, braised with prunes Mm -hmm. and it kind of melts down into the sauce. Well, I was kind of combining that idea with the Marcella Hazan classic of milk braised pork. Um, If you braise pork with milk, the proteins will split and it makes sort of like a rice pudding kind of texture which I don't always oh. love. So uh, gild the lily and uh, braise it with plums and heavy cream. And the heavy cream does not split because it has less protein in it than the milk. But it just cooks into this like beautiful kind of sweet and tangy and creamy sauce with this like fall apart pork shoulder. It's like the perfect fall wow. dinner party dish. We didn't photograph it for the book because it's... Um, 
It's a dish that a mother can love the aesthetic of. <laughs> but it's so it a, doesn't look pretty, it, yes, but it tastes really good. Put a green good. salad with it and some bread to sop up all those juices, and everyone will be happy even if it's not the it's, – it's ugly delicious. But see a picture of it, you're like, what is that? Right. It doesn't translate <laughs> to a big, full bleed. Full color. <laughs> I totally get you. Uh, the book also covers fruit waste, mm-hmm. which I think is important. You write that the average household – spends nearly $2,000 a year on food that gets tossed out Mm -hmm. and that over a third of it are fruits and vegetables. So just talk about some tips, uh, Abra, that you include in the book to really help minimize that waste. And what I found is that this is not a canning and jam book, but I find that the fruit that I waste the most are the, you know, quarter package of blueberries at the bottom of the packet Mm -hmm. or the, you know, half a melon that we're just not going to get to because we're going out of town. So the idea is... That last banana. Exactly. (laughs) And so mostly trying to preserve things in these smaller amounts. And I find the freezer is the thing that I leverage the most. So pop it in the freezer. It's going to buy you some time and you can often figure out what to do with it after that. Other things you can do are things like you can turn them into vinegar. So like those last few strawberries, you can take the stem off, soak it in vinegar and make a really flavorful vinegar for your next salad. Mm -hmm. Or, um, you know, you can cook, basically everything can get cooked down into fruit compote. And so you can just take all of those random dredges of fruit, pop them in your freezer, and then when you collect a full, you know, containers worth, pop it on the stove, maybe a little bit of sugar, cook it down and put that over oatmeal or over yogurt or serve that with a cookie for dessert. You know, it's it's going to be very straightforward. Yum, yum. Well, as we mentioned, you had your other cookbooks, Roughage, Grist, now Pulp. What's next? Uh, thankfully, I am the chef over at Grainer Farm in Three Oaks, and we are just getting started with our kind of, you know, busy season in the summertime. So we host um, experiential dinners at the farm that are seven courses based on what we're harvesting. Yeah. And so I feel very lucky that we're getting to busy oh. season with that. Those dinners do go year round. So what we don't cook in the summer, we preserve and put up for all of our winter dinners, too. So I look forward to it. That's the immediate thing. After that, I don't know. <laughs> A break. <laughs> Abra- <laughs> some fruit. (laughs) Amber Behrens is a Michigan chef, former farmer and author. Her latest cookbook, Pulp, a practical guide to cooking with fruit. It's available wherever books are sold. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me and for sharing your enthusiasm. I appreciate it.